You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. So glad you're here to join us. My name is Larry. I'm one of the pastors here. In the 1850 novel, The Scarlet Letter, Nathaniel Hawthorne writes of a woman named Hester Hester Prynne, who has given birth to a child out of wedlock. She is found guilty of adultery, and so she is forced to wear a scarlet letter on her dress. Uh, For three hours, she is on this scaffold while people are publicly humiliating her, and then she is required to wear this letter for the rest of her life as well. The story is an uncomfortable narrative to many Americans today. It is unsettling to think about this scene where you have this woman who is forced to wear the symbol that represents this decision that she made at one point in time, a sign of sin for all to see. And we might look at that and we might think that's so cruel, that's unjust, that's so painful. Yet in a very similar sense, Ash Wednesday is kind of similar. On Ash Wednesday, we are intentionally putting something on ourselves publicly that is a sign of our sin. There are two things about Ash Wednesday that are culturally uncomfortable. The first is that we are admitting our sin We live in a world where uh, our culture is full of self-affirmation and self-promotion, and it is countercultural to publicly to declare that we are sinners, that we have faults, that we are messed up, that we are in need of repentance. And the second thing that is culturally uncomfortable about Ash Wednesday is that not only are we admitting our sin, but we are admitting it publicly for all to see. We're not just putting ash on our heads uh, in you know in the quiet bedrooms in our homes, but we are doing it in front of one another. And you guys lucked out because we're doing an evening service. If, you, if we had a morning service, you, typically you wear this thing, you have this thing all day, and it's not just for Christians to see, but for the whole, for the whole world to see. And so that is also strange um, that every day you meet, uh, I mean, every day, the whole day, you are running into mailmen and teachers and bosses and employers and, and, all, these th- and all these people on the street and they have the opportunity to see that you are a sinner. It's interesting, isn't, isn't it, that Ash Wednesday, it's not just a, uh, a private confession that you do in a private booth, but it is meant to be a public confession for all people to see. There are a lot of differences between Ash Wednesday and the story of the Scarlet Letter, but I think a huge difference is that while Hester Prynne, she was forced to wear the Scarlet Letter, Uh, We, as Christians, we voluntarily do this to ourselves. It's not like in order to be a Christian, you have to do this, but you voluntarily, hopefully, you voluntarily came today to this service knowing, at least most of you knew, that you would potentially receive this mark on your forehead. And so to people outside of the Christian tradition, that might seem very strange. Why would we do such a thing? We'll take a look at what the Bible says. The Bible never prescribes in Ash Wednesday, but there are several verses in the Bible that talks about uh, the concept, talks about the themes, and there are a lot of passages that talk about what Ash represents. So let's talk about what Ash represents. Uh, In the book of Esther, maybe you're familiar, there's a Persian king uh, who has written, who has signed a decree uh, in which he is going to kill all the Jews in the Persian Empire. He's going to commit genocide. And so let's read Esther chapter 4, 1 through 3 to see what happens next. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city. 
And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So here's the scene where you have people across the whole nation putting ashes, putting ashes on themselves. And notice a few things here. Uh, Mordecai, he's not quietly mourning in his home. He, he was intentionally creating a public display. Right, you see this, like he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth. He went into the middle of the city. He cried with a loud and bitter cry. He went to the king's gate, which is, a, is sort of similar to us, you know, doing something in front of the White House. We don't see this sort of thing in our culture today anymore, this uh, putting, on, putting ashes on ourselves. But I think the, the most common thing in our culture that, that I can think of that is similar to this is the political protest. The political protest. And what I mean by this is, think about this. Just as Mordecai went up to the king's gate to display publicly his reactions to what was going on in the government, so people today, they go to Washington, D.C., or in front of the White House lawn, or they do these marches, they do these things in order to publicly display their dismay with what's going on in the government. And just as Mordecai, he physically tore his clothes and wore sackcloth and he cried loudly and bitterly to attract attention to himself. So people today, we do similar things, maybe not all of us, but some of us do. When we engage in these political protests or these rallies or these marches, what we do is we hold signs and we use megaphones and we use these visual displays. And all of that is to do a similar thing, to attract attention to ourselves. It seems like the reason why Mordecai was doing this is the same reason why people today, they go do these political public displays. It's the reason why they go on these marches and they block intersections and highways and the like, whether it's for women's rights or whether it's for racial justice or pro-life advocacy. What all these people have in common is they are upset with the status quo and they want to increase public awareness about what is going on in order to enact change. That's what's going on. Their hope is to get people, to get passerbys to stop in the tracks and to wonder what's going on here. Let me investigate. Let me learn about what's going on. And then they can be aware, be made aware of the issues at hand in the current status quo. In short, ashes bring public awareness to an unsatisfactory status quo. Ashes bring public awareness to an unsatisfactory status quo. In Mordecai's day, he put on sackcloth and ashes in order to publicly display to the whole Persian Empire and to encourage all Jews to do the same, to publicly display to the whole Persian Empire, the current status quo is messed up. There is about to be genocide among the Jewish people and people need to know about what's going on. What is our unsatisfactory status quo as we come together for Ash Wednesday? Well, let's hold that thought. Let's move on to the next passage. This one is in the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonas, uh, uh, some of you might be familiar, he's most famous for being swallowed up by a big fish. Uh, but after that whole fish incident, uh, God calls Jonah once again to preach the gospel to the city of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a big, wicked city. Uh, and let's read what happens in Jonah 3, 3 through 9. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, 
Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth, similar language, right? From the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Um, I love this passage. This passage blows my mind because you have this wicked city, Nineveh, that was, uh, it was massive in Jonah's day. It was one of the largest cities in the world at the time. And overnight, the whole city, from the least to the greatest, from the ordinary citizens all the way up to the king, from the whole top down, everyone decided to repent. It was this massive move, uh, movement of repentance. And notice that what we learn about ashes in Esther also applies here, right? This was a public display. They're not repenting in their own homes, in, in the quietness of their own homes, in the solitude of their own homes. They are doing it publicly. They are putting on sackcloth and ashes because they recognize there is something wrong with the status quo. There's something wrong with the status quo. This city is full of wickedness and corruption and violence, and we cannot let the status quo keep continuing this way. And they want to change. But there's an interesting difference between this story, the story in the book of Jonah, and the story in the book of Esther. Uh, in the book of Esther, Mordecai was putting on sackcloth and ashes to bring attention to the sin of another, namely the sins of the Persian Empire. Here in the book of Jonah, the people of Nineveh, they put on sackcloth and ashes to bring attention to their own sins, to their own sins. They're not putting on sackcloth and ashes in order to bring awareness about how this big bad government or this big bad group over here is doing all these things. They are owning their sins. Mordecai was calling out the sins of Persia. The people of Nineveh were calling out their own sins. And the biblical word for that, for this idea of calling out your own sins is repentance. Repentance. You know, we all have tendencies to notice the sins of other people uh, whether they're the sins of uh, big companies that are engaging in corruption or uh, our boss who is treating us unfairly or this person on the street who are, who's driving and cut us off. We have, a, we have a strong tendency to notice the sins of other people. And uh, maybe we do it out loud in a political protest. Maybe we do it quietly by judging them silently um, in our minds. But we all do it. We all call out people's sins. But repentance is to call out your own sin. It is to bring all of the discontent, all of the intensity, all the anger that you might have for another person when they sin and to bring it upon yourself when you sin. It is to locate and identify the sin in your own life and to allow that realization, that awareness, bring you to this feeling of vigor and intensity and saying, I don't want that in my life. I don't want the status quo. I want the status quo to change. Just as I am dissatisfied with the status quo out there and other people or in the world, so I must also be dissatisfied with the sins in here 
in my own heart. On Ash Wednesday, we, the church, we collectively declare to ourselves, to one another, to the world, it's a public declaration. We declare that we are dissatisfied with the status quo. We are dissatisfied with the status quo. We're dissatisfied with the sins of the world and we are dissatisfied with the sins of our hearts. And so we repent. We put ashes on our heads and we call upon God to bring about change. We ask God to intervene just like the city of Nineveh did. We ask God to intervene in our world and in our hearts. We're asking God to change our communities, change our neighborhoods, change our city, change our country and our world. But as Christians, most importantly, we're asking God to change us, to start with us, because revival starts with us. Later, we're going to be praying for one another and praying with one another, and um, it might seem a little bit strange when we do that. Um, especially some of you, you might not know each other very well, but I really want to encourage you to do that. Um, prayer is a sign of protest. Prayer is a declaration of, I do not want the status quo to continue the way it is today. I want God to intervene. I want God to change things up. I want God to shake our lives up. That's what prayer is all about. So it might be strange, but I guarantee you it's probably not as strange as Mordecai putting on sackcloth and ashes and hanging out at the king's gate uh, crying loudly. So later I'm going to encourage you to find a few people next to you. If you don't know them, introduce yourself and share a prayer requests if you want to do that and then pray for one another. Um, and while you do that, I want to encourage you to confess unsatisfactory, uh, just con confess the unsatisfactory status quo. I'll invite you to pray like the Jews in the book of Esther. Confess to one another your dissatisfaction with the world and ask God to bring about change. And I also invite you to pray like the king of Nineveh. Confess to one another your dissatisfaction with your own heart. Ask God to change up the status quo in your own heart. And uh, what we're going to do later is after about five minutes of praying with one another, I'm going to invite you to come up to the front and we'll receive our ashes. And what I'll do is I'll get some ash and place it on your forehead in the shape of a cross. Why is the ash in the shape of a cross? It's because we are not repenting hopelessly. We're not repenting aimlessly. We're not repenting directionlessly. We are repenting with the confidence that we have already been forgiven. That's why the ash is in the shape of a cross. You see, if you're not familiar with the stories of Jonah and with Esther, the story doesn't end where we ended it. Salvation came at the end of both of those stories. At the end of the story of Esther, the news of the plan of genocide reached Queen Esther. And what she did was she intervened on behalf of the Jews. She went before the king of Persia and the king of Persia decided to enact a new decree that saved the Jews. And at the end of the story of Jonah, the cries of the people of Nineveh were heard by God. And what God decided to do was not wipe them out. He relented and he decided to save them instead. And in both stories, because of the public display of sackcloth and ashes that led to repentance, because of that, salvation came at the end. 
The status quo was changed for the better and people were saved. And both of these stories, I submit to you, they are a glimpse of the big narrative story of the whole Bible, which is that everybody is messed up. Everybody has a status quo that is wrong and everybody is in need of change. As the Bible says, none of us is righteous, not even one. We like sheep have all gone astray. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And so the great issue of humanity is this, if that is our case, if that is our status quo, how then can we change? What must we do to be saved? How can we be forgiven? Let's read Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. This is what Jesus later echoed when he came on earth. He said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them what a a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. How can it be that there is such a dramatic shift in the status quo? That the poor receive good news and that the captives receive liberty and that the mourning would be comforted and that those who used to wear ashes on their heads, marked with sin, we had scarlet letters all over us. Now we have a beautiful headdress. How can that be? The passage is talking about Jesus. You see, at the right time, God sent his son down Jesus to live this life we could not live. We should have lived, but we couldn't live it. And he died the death we should have died. We should have died, but we couldn't do it. So he did it on our behalf in order to change the status quo, in order to save us, in order to launch this restored kingdom of God. In the scarlet letter throughout the book, as the story goes on, if you're not familiar, there's this... Um, narrative in which the public, they're continually pressing uh, Hester Prynne to reveal who the father of this child is. Um, so that judgment and shame could also fall on the father as well as her. Throughout the book, she was the one who chose to take the blame, and throughout the book, she refused to name the father. She refused to allow the identity of the father to be known. She hides his identity and she takes the full blame of both of them on herself. And Jesus did something similar, but better. Jesus had no sin of his own, yet he volunteered to take the blame of the whole world upon himself. And although Hester Prynne was publicly humiliated on the scaffold by wearing the scarlet letter, Jesus was publicly humiliated as well in the sham of a trial, in his beatings, in his crucifixion, naked for the world to see. And he wore a crown of thorns. And now Jesus has given all of humanity an invitation. And the invitation is this. If you repent, if you admit you're a sinner, if you declare your dissatisfaction with the status quo, the status quo of your own heart, and if you trust in Jesus, he will forgive you and he will give you a new heart. He will give you a new heart. If you're here today, maybe you've never repented of your sins before. You've never asked Jesus to forgive you before. I invite you to do that today. If that's something you want to do, we encourage you to write that down on a connection card or you can talk to one of us, uh, one of the pastors after service. We'd love to get to, talk, uh, get to know you and to talk a little bit about your story. You know, on this day, Ash Wednesday, some of us, we come from Christian traditions and we don't celebrate Ash Wednesday. We don't recognize it. You know, that was me. 
I've done it twice now. This is my second time. Um, but for those of us who are veterans, at most, we celebrate Ash Wednesday once a year. Once a year, we publicly bear ashes on our heads as a sign of repentance. We declare our sins to God and ask him to forgive us. And the reason why we can be confident that God has forgiven us, that God hears our prayers, is because Jesus publicly bears our sins. And you know what's interesting about Jesus? Um, After he rose from the dead, there's a scene uh, where he appears to Thomas, one of the disciples, and he asks Thomas to put his hands in Jesus' scars. And it's, it's fascinating, is it? isn't it, that, in, that Jesus has a glorified body that still has scars. And I think it's a sign that Jesus will have scars for all of eternity. Jesus publicly bears the scars of his crucifixion on his hands and feet as a sign of our salvation. And therefore, we bear the sign of repentance, ash on our foreheads once a year until the day we die. Jesus' salvation, Jesus' scars is the evidence that our prayers of repentance have been accepted and we are forgiven. Let's pray and then we'll, I'll lead us in prayer and then we'll um, grab, group up in little groups and we'll pray together. And if I can invite the worship team to come up as well during this time, that'd be great. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that Jesus, he bore our sins when he died on the cross so that we could be set free. And God, uh, our status quo is so strong sometimes. It's all we know sometimes. And so God, we repent, we confess, we declare our dissatisfaction with the status quo of our hearts. We lay it all out before you and we ask, just as the Jews in the book of Esther did, just as the Ninevites did, we ask that you would intervene that you would change us up, you would shake us up. And we pray in boldness because we know you've already done that through Jesus on the cross so that if we have already trusted in you, then we are clean, we are forgiven, we are set free. We ask that you bring us revival just as you brought about revival to Nineveh. May you do the same here in Baltimore. May you do the same in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.